All right. So I wasn't here last week, so um, I'm not sure what page we're on. Um, Kim, can you guide us to? The human mind. All right. So let's see. So for order, um, why don't we go? Um, it's not going to be difficult with, with five of us here. Um, uh, Daniel, um, myself, um, Ellen, Nelda, and then Kim. We have right, Cody. So, and Cody's in. And Cody. So here's here's yeah. what I'm actually going to do, um, which I've done this in other book clubs. I'm going to throw our order into the chat. Wow. Um, An innovation. Um, Ellen. Actually, since Cody's here, let's. Cody, we start with you. Just to, to keep it alphabetical. No, you're going. before he is. Cody, Daniel. Christian Ellen. is before Cody. Christian. Christian oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe I should put myself first. Yeah. But Christian, <laughs> you have to be very careful here. In, in another group I was in at noon, someone was so good that they have permanent status <laughs> as leader. <laughs> well, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> uh, who, who am I missing? Uh, one, two, three, four. One. I think that's it. Um, all right, and I, and I want to propose one other um, change as leader today. Um, that um, since we have a small group, that perhaps and please you know give input on this. Perhaps we read um, a page, keep the page up on the screen because it's such a rich text, and maybe we just have if anyone if we want to have a little conversation just about that page, we we try that. As opposed to a paragraph. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes a paragraph will almost be a page. How's um, the type size? Does it need to be this big? Um, well, I can I can only see two sentences here. That's all there are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, we'll do the next page. This with the next page. Yeah. So, okay. So, sound good? Yeah, I think I this is a great idea. I think um, Kim also uh, the last time when you were giving some examples uh, after reading that really helps because the book is very difficult. Um, okay, even cool. Stopping for yeah, a few seconds, even after each paragraph and um, discussing is very helpful. So, okay. I really like that. One time Alan, Alan uh, did that also. Well, let's see how it goes. So, okay. <laughs> uh, so is this everything on this page? Um, okay, so the human mind, a samurai asked the Zen master, do you believe in hell and paradise? The Zen master said, yes, I believe. Then the samurai asked, where are they? The Zen master said, you are, you are a coward samurai. Samurai must be brave, strong. Immediately the samurai got angry and tried to attack him with a sword. The Zen master said, uh-oh, here's hell. So how do, guys, how do you guys how do you guys read this? Yeah, good. You want to finish the paragraph? Yeah, let's do that. I, I think that's a good idea, Ellen, since this is such a just a section. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> At that moment, the samurai attained enlightenment. Yeah, this is pretty important. <laughs> he realized, oh, that's right. So he put his sword back into the scabbard. The Zen mat 
master said, here's paradise. This story shows the moving and changing nature of the human mind. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) We really give ourselves away with the question we ask, don't we? (laughs) Yeah. That's how I'm reading it. But haven't each of us experienced this life in moments as heaven and or paradise or whatever term in other moments as hell? I mean, it's right here. I think some people probably experience that every day. You <laughs> yeah. Know? yeah, probably all of us. <laughs> yeah. Do you think the hell, the hell for the samurai <laughs> when he was into the question was was um, uh, imagining what might happen when he dies? No, I yeah. think he got so angry. That was his hell. Yeah, that was his his own hell. And yeah. then when he re- when he realized that uh he didn't have to go there. Well, but why did he why did the Zen master say you're a coward? Just to yeah. aggravate him. Mm-hmm. Oh, not because he was asking that question. Yeah, because no. he was asking that he asked where are they? So he 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 annoyed him to make him angry. So he could show him where hell was. I, you know, I, I think it, I look at it a little differently. I think, and you know, this is just another way to look at it, but I think that the, the Zen masters in true Zen riddle fashion is playing with him a little bit. And, and just in the annoyance that he's asking the question and he's not dwelling in the uncertainty of the question, but he expects there to be an answer that's absolute, either this or that. Um, and the reality is, is that's, that's a dualistic kind of mindset that isn't productive, I think. And, um, and is, yeah, I think, so he's playing with him by saying the opposite thing. So. But why is he calling him a coward? To excite him, to bring about the hell of that is created by a simple word like coward. So a tiny little word creates hell in the samurai. And the same circumstance moments later becomes paradise. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, yeah. It falls into that, but I think the original, you are a coward is, is, and you guys, I'm sure, are probably right, but my take is he's saying you're a coward because you're thinking about that. You're thinking about death oh. and what might happen to you. It's hmm. a good point, Kim, actually. Except how is that cowardly to think about it? Worrying. A samurai shouldn't be worrying about that. A samurai must be brave and strong. Yeah. <laughs> by by you, definition, you've watched your samurai TV, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what it says right here in the paragraph. Yeah, don't say that. It literally, Cody's right. It says that. <laughs> Being brave and strong wouldn't wouldn't would be not thinking about the consequences of what happens when you die, especially uh, if you're a samurai. <laughs> yes, especially. <laughs> I told Nelda earlier today a samurai story where the samurai, and some of you have heard this, I'm sure, the samurai asked the Zen master, 
says to the Zen master, you know, I could cut your head off without flinching. And then the Zen master says, yes, and I could have my head cut off without flinching. And <laughs> then the samurai sits down his sword. And, and so that's kind of a parallel story to this one. That's great. <laughs> All right. Well, oh, it's my turn. Where do we go on? <laughs> When you see when you see the term human human mind, immediately you ask what it is. What compels you to ask? It is your own human mind. Your human mind wants to possess something as a concept, which becomes human knowledge. For this, Western psychology is a very useful science by which we study human life and the individual self from a particular angle. <clears throat> but no matter how hard you try to understand human life by mastering concepts, still it's very difficult to pin down the total picture of human life. So, I mean, you know. I don't know why this came up in me, but what came up was trying to understand an elephant by touching different parts. And you've heard that story. But what came up is even if you touch all the external parts and come up with a composite picture, no one really knows how an elephant feels. And you've seen stories of them mourning the death of someone, of some other elephant in the herd. And, and so it, sometimes it's beyond us to imagine how they feel and what comes before the that feeling is is demonstrated and so i think this is a really good point that even though um in psychology we have a way to approach it from a particular angle we still don't know the totality of what human life is this is sure the basis of western education isn't it that if you master concepts, you'll understand this or that. That's what I like so much about this stuff is that yeah. it's such a great alternative. Yeah, I mean, the concept, obviously mastering a concept is just one of just so many dimensions of any experiential um, dynamic. So it's, you know, clearly he's pointing that out as before he goes into, you know, a more um, multidimensional Buddhist um, perspective on knowledge and conceptual experience. So is Ellen next? Yeah. Daniel. Uh, this is oh. no. um, In Buddhism, we also study human life and the individual self. <coughs> so there is a kind of Buddhist psychology. We analyze the human mind, trying to learn what consciousness is and how our, our minds are working. So, the, so it is psychology. But on the other hand, our final goal is not to understand the human mind, 
it is to be free from the human mind. So simultaneously, it is not psychology. So what does that mean? To be free from it. I think you could look at it lots of different ways from all the trappings of the human mind from grasping to ego to all the different aspects that hold us back from interdependent coexistence, transparency. You think it's the I? It's like when I say I am here or I think this is at the human mind talking. Nelda, earlier you were you were using the word I and then referring to something, and I kept seeing the separation between the I and all the other stuff, you know. I don't remember. I'm sure I used in our conversation the word yeah. I a lot. But I also, at the end of our conversation, made the statement, I am not my feelings. I am not my emotions. I am not just my, I'm not my feelings. I'm not my emotions. I'm not my body pains. Those are, those are elements of my human existence right now that in many ways I have control over. And so I'm able to change my emotions by my thoughts, my aches and pains also by my thoughts or lack thereof, right? If I'm not heavily focused on, oh, this is so miserable. Um, so in a sense, it's not both, but it's not one. I mean, it's, Yes, we have those, but but are we those? If I only measure you by your emotions, I'm not taking an accurate measure. Is that what you're talking about, Kim? Well, I was I was little. There was this I talking about this other stuff. Oh, this I talking about this story in my life. Is that and, what? And, yeah, and I was wondering where that I was. You know, <laughs> does the I have any presence in it of its own? Well, is, it, is it in a other? sense, in a sense, it did because it had a presence as an observer. And then someone else might argue, well, that was just your mind looking back on this story and and piecing things together in a cohesive way. But I really don't know that that's that that's a correct description either. Okay. All right, let's move on. Guess it's me, huh? Mm. Go for it, Ellen. Okay. History of Buddhist psychology. People often use words such as mind, spirit, or soul to represent something opposite to a material state of being. But we don't really know what those words mean exactly. For many, many years, centuries, Buddhists have tried to know the meaning of mind. It is a very big problem for us. Maybe I'll read one more paragraph. Sure, sounds good. 
Uh, ancient Buddhist scriptures such as the Lotus Sutra and the Vimalakirti Sutra and the Prajnaparamita Sutra all emphasize the existence of mind, but the term mind isn't always used in the same way. Sometimes mind represents this, the conscious human mind. Sometimes it represents all, all that exists in the world of phenomena, including the human mind. What's the difference? They don't explain. If you study ancient scriptures, you always have to figure out what the term mind means. Well, that's interesting. This was a big problem, but as Buddhism developed, people gradually began to study what is the difference between the human mind and phenomenal existence. All right. Maybe I'm next. Yeah, let's read the next one. I think it, it all connects. It'd be a good time to talk about it, perhaps. In the second century, the philosopher Nargajuna realized that there is phenomenal existence, which includes the conscious human mind, and there is the original functioning of truth by which the human mind and all phenomenal existence are produced. Though human consciousness and phenomena, phenomenal existence have the same original <coughs> nature. But there was still... You know, oh, go on. Uh, I, I watched a uh, video with Alan Watts uh, some years ago, and he basically said that uh, like the universe is an apple tree and the fruit of that apple tree is basically everything that's in the universe. So say like it's not separate from the tree. Um, it's, it's all part of the tree. So like the human mind and the universe is all connected. It's, it's kind of hard to explain. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and listen to it and, and, and get a better explanation of it. Oh, I remember but, uh, this. Yeah, he said that the, just like apple tree is apples, the uh, earth the, is peoples. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a, there's a neuro neurological saying that I think is really interesting connected to that, which is that um, there are um, 10 billion neurons in our brain, and there are 10 billion stars in the known universe. Oh, no. <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> oh, my pretty, gosh. Which is pretty mind-boggling when you think of it. <laughs> so literally the whole idea of our mind containing the multitudes. Um, you know, it, there are, there's like a bizarre parallel there. <laughs> Did you say 10 million? 10 billion. No, 10 billion. Billion. It's billion. 10 billion neurons. 10 billion stars. That is amazing coincidence. That's what they know. It, it could be, it could be many, many more. It could be more. And, and the brain is a very mysterious thing that's being studied, one of the most mysterious um, you know, um, things on the planet, still from a science standpoint. So there could be many more neurons for all we know. <laughs> and many more stars. <laughs> yeah. That we know. I, I don't I don't see that as coincidence. I see that as synchronicity. I agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see who's up. Zelda. No, I'm after Kim. Oh. Oh wait, wait actually it's me. You you just read Kim, right? Yeah. But okay. I'm next after Kim. 
Yeah, oh, I didn't yeah, put you on. You, Jeez. No, but I know that the little I exists. <laughs> <laughs> no little eye in this case. <laughs> so are we I'm, on... not, I'm not sure of that, Nelda. I, maybe it's just the the mind that exists. Maybe. Which one? The phenomenon phenomenological one. So are we on the paragraph that starts, but there were yeah. still okay. Yeah. But there was still trouble because that didn't explain the difference between the original nature of the mind and the phenomenal existence, which includes the conscious human mind. Philosophers just said that without the functioning of the mind, it's impossible to recognize phenomenal existence. And without phenomenal existence, it's impossible to recognize the functioning of truth with a capital T, truth. So I'm a little confused about what ph phenomenal existence is. He never defined Phen it. Well, we'll see. Oh, no definition found, of course, but phenomenal. I think, I think what he's talking about is how we understand the world out here from a, a na the nature of phenomenon, um, things It happening. says, this is nice, perceptible yeah. by the senses or through immediate experience, a phenomenal world. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's what the mind does is, is it recognizes things that exist, like a table. So how different is this paragraph then when I am sometimes, not often enough, sitting and realize that I'm an extension of the universe and because I was fortunate enough to get senses that I am able to look at myself, a piece of the universe looking at itself. To me, this paragraph says a similar thing that without the mind, the mind also including the senses and the ability to process what comes through the senses, that without the mind, we wouldn't recognize the universe, what, what is. What, and then when I say universe, I don't just mean what's found around our solar system. I mean every single cosmos and every bit of, of what exists that, that we know of. Well, is this something way beyond, uh, there was a, a squirrel about two feet from me <laughs> earlier today. <laughs> is, is this different than what the squirrel recognizes? I think it's more limited. I don't know that it's different because I don't really know to what extent a squirrel is conscious in the same way that we can be. Because it seems like what you're hinting at is something beyond phenomenal existence. The connection of of the things you see to the entire universe that kind of stuff and us being an extension of that yeah. intimately and doesn't buddha talk about different realms of of um but give me the right words incarnation that the lower realms are animals and then yeah. the higher realms are and so i doubt that based on that that squirrels can really fully grasp um, truth. Their truth is limited by their senses and their abilities, as ours is yeah, limited he said, by. He, he talked earlier about this truth business. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, um, 
you know, that's, I think that's a common belief in Buddhism. And as someone who is an animal lover and, you know, has a dog and <laughs> very connected to them, you know, it's always something I've really questioned. And um, that, you know, obviously they don't have the, you know, a different mental capacity. But I think if you think about phenomenon as about relations to one another and interdependence, I think their universe can be just as interdependent and full of the universe as any other living creature. But again, I mean, I know that goes very much against traditional Buddhist thought, which I've been known to do, so. I agree with you on doggies. <laughs> Looks like Cody does too. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, it's on you. It's all, I think. Uh, it's, oh, no, that's me. Okay. So you finished on truth, the, the capital truth, right? Um, the capital T. Um, Buddhism always emphasizes that phenomenal existence can't exist alone. It must exist with truth. And on the other hand, truth can't exist alone. It must exist with phenomena. We say so because if you hold on to a one-sided idea of truth as the original nature of mind, then you completely forget the other side. Without the mind of phenomenal existence, you cannot understand the truth. But early philosophical philosophers didn't explain logically. They just offer the totality of existence. I have no idea what this uh, <laughs> truth business is. Yeah, I, uh, what, uh, ha, did I miss something? What's he, how's he defining truth? I mean, I guess. Well, it, it went back to that statement by Nagarjuna uh -huh. um, here. Okay. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's interesting because I think, I think anytime you start talking about the truth, I think it's a slippery slope to dualism. Um, and I don't, I've had, I've read quite a bit of Nagarjuna's work and I don't know that he ever talks about the truth, but anyways. Um, um, I mean, here they're even capsulizing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Right, right up here, but. Maybe we should read the next paragraph to see if that helps. Yeah. It was like putting lots of delicious dishes on one big plate. American pizza, Japanese sushi, <laughs> Chinese ramen. They didn't explain how sushi and pizza are different. They just emphasized that sushi can't exist alone. <laughs> sushi, sushi must exist with pizza. <laughs> pizza must exist with sushi. In other words, all sentient beings are interconnected. So they put all kinds of food on one plate for you to accept without discrimination. And then they just offer it to you. Here it is, this is your food, please eat. So Buddhists in ancient times suffered because our human intelligence wants to know that what the difference is, but philosophers didn't have a satisfactory explanation. So that makes a lot of sense. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Explain it to me. 
Oh, you want me to explain it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, the analogy that, you know, you put all these different foods on, on the plate, you don't have to basically discern one from another. Okay. It, it just is. Um, because I, I think that I would think that, you know, you try to get into the business of trying to separate everything, then that's when a whole lot of confusion comes in, especially if you don't know uh, the difference between one or the other, like sushi or pizza or ramen. I mean, that's yeah. my, that's the that's the best way I could explain it. Uh, well, I see what you mean. And also it would. And then if you just had a bunch of different types of food on your plate, I mean, maybe there wouldn't, I mean, it, maybe it eliminates the whole, I like it, I don't like it. It's just food. Like, exactly. I like pizza, I don't like sushi, you know, something like that. Yeah, because, I mean, in, in more in modern times, you you know what the difference is just by, you know, people talking about it and, right. and whatnot, but in this in this age and well in the past you know it just everything on the plate is just everything on the plate it's just what you eat <laughs> exactly yeah or maybe it's similar to what Han once said so we never stop to think that an apple is really a cloud mm-hmm. and a cloud is really the sun and that the earth is really a star and so when we recognize as truth that those are all exactly the, the the same thing that an apple wouldn't exist but for the sun and the cloud if we recognize that sort of phenomenal existence inter you know the interpen- interdependence of all phenomena we stop seeing this dualism of you me this that even for me sentient beings versus um the energy you find in rocks you know um right yeah and he's saying and if you tie it back to the last paragraph he's literally saying he's using this to illustrate connecting the human mind to all of phenomenal existence right and basically saying there is no difference they're interdependent and the same ultimately the same thing that's that's how I'm reading it, but I, I'm a baby Buddha in the making, so I don't know much. We're all baby Buddhas. <laughs> <laughs> um, but clearly, I mean, he says, inter- I mean, if we just look at the text, he's saying all sentient beings being interconnected. He's talking about it in the last paragraph. So it's definitely illustrating interconnectedness on some, on some level. Um, pizza and sushi together, that's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Who's up next? Let's uh, see. That's going to be me. Daniel. Finally, to satisfy our big balloon human head, in the fourth and fifth centuries, the Yagotchora school tried to understand the difference and created Buddhist psychology. This is very nice for us. Yugo Chora made a logical explanation of the difference between the human mind and phenomenal exist, 
existence. What knows and what is known, what sees and what is seen, in other words, subject and object. Should I continue? Yeah, one, yeah, one we do one more. The human mind is very sticky. It is always looking for something to attach to. For example, if you are eating pizza, there is an object for your mind, pizza. Your mind looks at pizza and tells you, this is your food. But the human mind doesn't only look outwardly. It also looks inwardly. So the object of your mind is not only pizza. It is also your own mind. You are eating pizza and you are also looking at yourself. That is why you can say, I am eating pizza. Comes back to the I question. Yeah, and there I is your body. Isn't it? I mean, you could just as well say my body is eating pizza. Exactly. <laughs> or you could even say to take it, my body is eating myself. If you really think about it, and we're all made from the same stuff, just we happen to be in different iterations. Sometimes we're, you know, earth dust, and sometimes we're pizza. We're pizza, and sometimes <laughs> we have a human body, and you know. Yeah, I mean, it ties to the whole idea of no self. Exactly. But, but the poly, the poly um, for that, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong. Uh, Parapachi um, actually has been translated as um, not self. Um, and so it's been identified as body not being yourself. So um, not that there's no self, but that it's much more kind of fluid and flexible. Because obviously we have to be able to identify us on some level that this is us, you know, that we are an entity that has consciousness that is. I'm different from Kim and so forth. So there has to be some sentient separation, but at the same time, um, doesn't mean that our body is ourself. <laughs> Did the Pali writings um, exhibit a belief in a universal consciousness that although part of our consciousness is, con there's a consciousness that's confined to this body, there's also a universal consciousness? I think that's a really good question. I think um, I'm not an expert in it, but I think I think the idea is is that um, that there is yeah there is something that is very flexible and fluid that makes us us, um, but is still interdependent and interconnected with the universe. So maybe that is what you're saying, but maybe it's mincing words too. I'm not sure. <laughs> I've heard that, in fact, I've talked with today or yesterday that there's one Buddha nature. We're all part of this Buddha nature. It's not like I have Buddha nature, you have Buddha nature. <laughs> it's it's yet, our nature. So that's kind of the universal consciousness. Right. And Maybe. yet I know that you're Kim and you know that I'm Christian. Right. And so on some level, we have separation, um, even though 
we are all talking about and speaking to this idea of interdependence and universal consciousness. So, and that's the not one, not two, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you want me to go ahead and read? Yeah, let's do. Thanks, Ellen. Okay, when you recognize that you are eating pizza, you have confidence in your life. I am here and I am eating pizza. There is a kind of security in your existence. That's why the Western philosopher Descartes, how do you say that? Descartes. You don't pronounce the S at the end. You don't? Descartes. Okay. Or just Descartes. 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 Descartes said, I am thinking, therefore I exist. Descartes was a great philosopher because he realized that point. But there is something that your mind cannot recognize objectively. What is it? That is consciousness itself. Now I keep going to the fact that fish supposedly don't have a sense of what water is <laughs> you know, in the same way. The stuff is so close to us. Mm -hmm. Why don't we read the last paragraph since it's at the end of the chapter? Okay. You want me to read it? Sure. Okay. Uh, you hear the term consciousness and immediately you want to know what it is. But before you think about it, consciousness is already present in your life. There it is. So consciousness exists, but not as something fixed that you can stick a label on. You cannot attach a label to it because it is completely beyond the limitations of concept. It is simply a dynamic state of being where your mind is simultaneously your own mind and also the mind of all sentient beings. In other words, all phenomenal existence. When you experience that true state of being directly of, of that, when you experience that true state of being directly and accept that dynamism in your life, then you know the real meaning of mind. Since that's a rephrase of what you just said. What's that? Oops, I'm trying to get that. Sorry. Are you talking about the mind is simultaneously your own mind and yes. also the mind of all sentient yes. things? Yes. He said it much better though. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a... Mind is simultaneously your own mind and all sentient beings. Yeah, I think that it's interesting that the, the uh, dy dynamism, I think he's come back to a couple times up, um, throughout the book as far as staying, keeping in motion, you know, always the, that Dharma is about constantly changing and, and recreating yourself it's about forces rather than motion or matter yes yeah i like that kim all right who's up kim kim in, you? in buddhist psychology oh karmic energy and human consciousness in Buddhist psychology, the human mind is called vijnana, a Sanskrit word that is translated as consciousness. In terms of the five skandhas that constitute human existence, vijnana is the fifth one, 
which is called mind. The four other skandhas are form, rupa, feeling, vedana, perception, samjna, and impulses, samskara. Why don't we um, read the next section? Two sections of vijnana. To understand our human consciousness called <coughs> vij vijnana, we have to learn its two important characteristics. First, vijnana possesses within itself potential energy by which it can carry itself on from moment to moment. Second, this potential energy creates the phenomenal world, which includes human consciousness. This teaching <coughs> is a little difficult to understand, but I will try to explain. According to the first characteristics of Vijnana, within a moment of time, there is potential energy. Consciousness uses that energy to carry itself on. To carry on means to nurture something from an immature state to a mature state. For example, when a baby is born, that baby is in an immature, is in an immature being. Then, moment by moment, the time process nurtures the baby to become an adult. The same applies to the potential energy that has nurtured human consciousness from the beginningless past. I'm gonna do the next one. But babies are nurtured by their mothers, food, and a lot of things. So how can the potential energy of consciousness nurture itself? This is very interesting. The cause is phenomenal existence itself. In other words, the day-to-day -day reality of all sentient beings which potential energy creates is the direct cause of nurturing the potential energy by which consciousness can carry itself on from moment to moment. This is called karma. That made a lot of sense, actually. Very interesting. Understanding. Well, I, you know, oh. the definition of karma that I'm used to is is that it's volitional action. And this seems like this karma aren't necessarily the things we're doing intentionally. Oh, I, I, that, I didn't know that definition, Kim. Can you explain that, Kim? I, yeah, I'm not familiar with that. Definition. Oh, that, it, that, that, that accidents aren't, aren't karma. But they, they have to be volitional. They have to be intentional. So this this idea of karma is really So different. would you do a, just as a favor I'm just curious not that whatever definition pops up in a dictionary is the absolute accurate one but I always thought karma simply meant the outcome of previous actions Well so, it's different in here is Hindu and Buddhism and it's different in each the sum of a person's action in this and previous states of existence viewed as deciding their fate in future existences. But see, <coughs> even that definition does not include the component of volition. 
It just says the sum of a person's actions. It does not contain within it the, the sum of a person's intentional actions. It just says, I know, but, yeah. but I will find another definition. Okay. <laughs> I've got a boobus dictionary. I'll look oh, cool. It. That's great. Oh, here, actually. There's a Sanskrit term that literally means action or doing. Karma refers to action driven by intention. Mm. Was Satana. It which leads to future consequences. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So it has to be intentional. Those intentions are considered to be determining factor in the kind of rebirth. The kind of rebirth in samsara. So these are moments when I would love to have Peg. Oh yeah, that would be great <laughs> what she has to say. Uh, in this Buddhist dictionary, it lists so many kinds of karma that you don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> that in itself is kind of interesting that there are that many definitions of oh, karma yeah. we've got yeah. karma pa we've got karma pakshi karma pa pata i guess that's the only ones but that's enough and they're big long you know there's a lot of uh, of definition to each one of them here, a deed, a deed done deliberately through body, speech, and mind, which leads to future consequences. Hmm. Yeah, there's so many schools of Buddhism that, yeah, that's, there's a, I'm not surprised. There's oh, it's the Buddha there. defined karma as intention, whether the intention manifested itself in physical, vocal, or mental form. It was the intention alone that had a moral character, good, bad, or neutral. The focus of interest shifted from physical action involving people and objects in the real world to psychological process. Oh, okay. Right. I mean, that's that's tying it, not even connecting it with rebirth, but just with in in one's own life, right? So that's you know another controversial topic in, in the Buddhist world. Going back to the reading, it seems to me that he is not defining karma. If you read that paragraph from, but, but babies are nurtured. Here, so it, it, the next paragraph, let's do that. Okay. Um, Understanding. <laughs> Go ahead, Cody, sorry. Oh, is, is it on you or? It is on you, right? Oh, yeah, is it me? Okay, yeah, 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 it is yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, sure, thanks, okay. Understanding karma as the direct cause of nurturing potential energy is not the common meaning of karma. People often put a certain label on karma and then it is called bad karma. You don't really know what it is, but you believe that something accumulated in your past life um, controls your present life. If you think in that way, then your life is based on the principle of fatalism, but karma doesn't behave in that way. Karma doesn't have particular labels it's really free.
I'll read on a little bit more, maybe. Of course, we cannot ignore karma coming from the beginning of this past. But the direct cause of nurturing the potential energy by which our life is carried on to the next moment is the reality we create by our way of living right now. <clears throat> Anytime, anywhere, you can do something. good for the future so there's always a possibility to live toward your own future or for future generations this is very important for us because we have we have we can have hope i'll read another one we can have hope because of the second characteristic of vinyana the potential energy that vinyana possesses creates the phenomenal world. How? Within the world of unity, all at once life subtly begins to move toward difference. Then, according to a chain of causation, our life in the human world arises. That subtle original movement of life from oneness to multiplicity is the incipient moment. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I think he's he's connecting it to the sort of instant karma principle of any any action and reaction and its impact, whether it's something five minutes down the road or five hundred years into the future. Trouty will be able to talk to us more about this too. Yeah. She oh, couldn't yeah. come tonight since I have her computer. Yeah. <laughs> it, got, and, and it got it got stuck on. Uh, on being in French, and then she couldn't type her password. And oh, we, no. we tried everything in the world, all different kinds <laughs> of keyboards and stuff. Uh, worked hours with Apple. It just could not be done, so I had to redo it. Yikes, or find someone who speaks French. No, no, that wasn't the problem. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm having some dissonance with this because again, the word hope comes up not once, but twice. And I thought hope was a no-no in Buddhism. Why, why so, Nelda? Well, I once asked uh, Peg in one of our uh, inquiries, um, what was wrong with hope? And she says, hope is a form of attachment because you are wanting or searching for something you don't have you you have this desire wish for you know i hope tomorrow's sunny i hope you know i hope whatever i hope my son has five grandchildren for me whatever your your hope is and it's an attachment and so she actually said something and i don't Kim, do you remember her words exact hope? I know is... Flint, both Flint and uh, Peg are really down down on hope. So I guess the question is, I mean, obviously, what do you think? And B, is it really hope or is excessive hope for something um, really what is being talked about? You know, like hoping for something so much that it it rules you and um, something that that um, is you can't 
you know, is drives you to an over overly degree that it's that you're not holding on to lightly, which I think is, and I, from, my, from my thinking would, would be more of a, I mean, that's a more of kind of a Buddhist mentality of that, but just, you know. I don't know. I got the impression that she was saying any kind of hope was a subtle, whether it was intense or not, is a form of attachment. Here it says, hope is often tied into, to, like Christian saying, into desire and craving, which Buddhists regard as a form of suffering. <laughs> yeah, craving, I think, yeah, because I think the word craving is, an, I mean, from my thinking, it's like, yeah, that's an extreme version of, that's taking hope to an extreme, which, right, Buddhism tries to avoid the extremes. Um, it maybe. takes you out of this moment. That's what I don't like about it. Yeah, because you can get obsessed with it, right? You yeah. know, like 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 when I was um, applying for jobs, um, my whole life was waiting for the mail. That was kind of hope, 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 hope. And I, you know, I missed a semester of school, graduate school. <laughs> but then I, I took my 276 rejection letters and... <laughs> and staple gun them to this four by four column all the way to the ceiling. I applied to every school, whether or not they had a job in Oregon or Washington, because that's where I wanted to live. Anyway. I don't see anything wrong with hoping someone gets home safely. And that may be a small, you know, attachment to wanting someone to be safe, but... Um... Anyway, I, I just recall that. And so I hear, him say, yeah. I, I hear him say, this is very important for us because we can have hope. And yet I hear Peg say, no, 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 don't go there. And so. So this is an article. Why don't Buddhists believe in hope? Oh, well, wow. it, it says, Ooh, I, I think hope can cause a lot of suffering. If your hope <laughs> is for things to be different than they currently are. So that's doesn't mean you can't plan for the future, but getting attached to the way you want things to be turns out to cause suffering. Yeah, I think it comes back to the idea of holding on to things lightly as if you can, yeah. And um, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think there's any, I mean, personally, I don't, I think hope's a wonderful thing. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, you know, what it's one of the things that makes us human. <laughs> That's just me. Y'all, it's it's my bedtime. Okay. Later here than it is there. Should we so, stop here? How much more do we have for this? Um, and, so we can and, and, and do our writing. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's. Um, oh wait, what's? Can we go to the next page? Are we clo close to the end? Uh, end of I don't chat? know. Let, let's see. Why don't we finish? Why don't we go to the beginning? Why don't we go to right there? Okay. Let's do that. Just to finish it up, you know. Okay. Who's reading? Uh, that's me. <coughs> um, we can hope because of the second characteristic of by Nana. The potential energy that Vayana possesses creates the phenomenal world. How? Within the world of unity, all at once life subtly begins to move toward difference. 
then according to chain of causation our life in the human world arises that subtle original movement of life from oneness to multiplicity is the incept incipient moment and and suppose i heard a, a lecture by about the creation of the universe and in the first part of a second there was only one everything was the same and it was exactly like this and then things started to become different and the reason why penguins are are more diverse than human beings is because they've been on the planet so much longer when you see penguins on an iceberg they're genetically more different than all the human beings on earth which is cool i think that's pretty cool so so that goes with this the longer things around the more different it will be and when you buy like 10 items at a store 10 identical items and then you know 10 years later they'll be in all different states right because some will disintegrate some will never have been touched and still be in the box so it's the same deal there too okay so who's up let's see let's see who's going to finish up here uh oh ellen left so it's you can Do I need to change the page? Um, where are we? We're at the um, in, in the twelve fold chain. In the twelve chain, yeah. We've got who's one. Read, who's reading? It's you, Kim. One last, one last oh, paragraph. In the twelve fold chain of causation, pratya samutaba tapada. The first link is avida. the very subtle vibration of mind that is called ignorance link 2 is samkara the formative action forces of karma <coughs> vijnana human consciousness is link 3 samkara accepts the movement of ignorance nurtures it and then human consciousness arises based on the creative forces of karmic energy the functioning of samkara means that before your human consciousness appears the energy that supports your life is already there okay actually i guess we have longer to, we have more to go than i thought um we could stop there and and write for 10 minutes and then but we just have this much oh is there only one more one more paragraph yeah okay let's keep yeah. going let's keep going okay i thought i'd there's one more page okay okay um I'll pick up. Um so oh, I'm sorry Nelda it's you. Once human consciousness appears it is always looking for an object. So name and form appear as the fourth link followed by the six sense realms and then contact sensation craving grasping and being. In Sanskrit Sanskrit grasping is called upadana the acquiring of karma and the tenth link being is called Baba, your very existence. 
Now you can go, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> the 11th link is birth, the appearance of your present life, which exists for exactly one moment. Then by your activity of living in that moment as a human being, you produce seeds of karmic energy that will mature in the future. Finally, in the 12th link, one moment of life in the phenomenal world is passing away and immediately a new moment of life is arising. That new life appears based on the potential energy produced by... Get on the wall here. Oops. Okay. Causes and conditions created in the past. This is how Vinyana can nurture itself and carry itself on from moment to moment. Like this sounds so much like quantum physics. You know, I was just, I was thinking that too, actually, Nelda. <laughs> that not even ex atoms exist except under the right causes and conditions that bring them into existence. Otherwise, not even an atom exists. The basic or fundamental formation of life. I mean, so, yeah, I'm going to have to reread this chapter. I'm 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 totally confused and. Um, um, not, um, it's not resonating. <laughs> all right, shall we write for 10 minutes and then discuss? Yeah. Then it'll all make sense, I'm sure. Maybe not. <laughs> Thanks, Kim. All right, who has some ideas and thoughts and, and writings they'd like to share? Or who wants to go first, I should say. <laughs> I'll go first to relieve myself of pain and suffering. I <laughs> found this quite esoteric. Um, I did. And um, what did, I don't remember. I wish I could remember what Christoph's, um, there's a very poignant, key part of his Dharma talk this Sunday that talked about um, understanding Buddhism in this way, this way, or this way. One is it leads to a deeper understanding and that the one I would, which is I think is experientially was just pure suffering. Well, that, that must be where I am because um, uh, I, I just need to reread this and then let go of it because just um, so here's what I wrote. Another school of thought, <laughs> a gathering of words attempting to explain the unexplainable, at times the inexplicable, like grasping for air and one supposedly catching that air in your hands and opening it to observe what you have. It's dissipated, doesn't exist. So what does all of this mean for our, my embodied existence now? I wonder if by trying to explain, we simply create another construct. Ironically, we're encouraged to live at the most uncluttered level. Just sit, we're told, breathe. Find the small eye in yourself to lose that small eye and open to the greater truth of our, and I didn't, I didn't remember the phrase, um, 
whatever phenomenal phenomenological existence. So I ask myself, how does one explain consciousness when we don't even know where consciousness resides and any place we try to place it is simply a theory. So back to the basics for me, why do I practice? To relieve my suffering, to learn the small eye well enough to, as Carolyn May said, just let go. Let go of how you thought your life should be and embrace the life that is trying to work its way into your consciousness. That really helped me. Oh, good. How did, how did it help you, Kim? Understand what we were reading. That helped me understand. That was beautiful. I like that. I wrote about I, too. So, so here, oops, yeah, you can see it. So that's the drawing, and that's I, me looking at I, and then there's a, a icky egg, because I don't like eggs. And oh, mm. thus, me looking at I. Okay, I am here, I think I am, when I try to figure out I, I get confused. Is there an I in me? Where might she reside? I don't like hard boiled eggs. I've never eaten one. Who is this I? What does she look like? So, so that, yeah. so that's I. It just seems so empty, this I, you know? Like I just see it as this, uh, the real business is not I, but me, in a sense. You know, you say, I am here, but who's, the, who's here? <coughs> I, I can't, I'm, I can't attach much, uh, substance to this thing to the eye yeah especially you know not to get back to the whole physics of it because i'm not a scientist but you know we're, we're talking about uh, sort of the i think in a previous meeting about when is i here like when when is the now when is the here and and when is the past and when is the future and you know maybe we talked about this but you can't pinpoint the moment between the present, the past and the present. Scientifically, it's impossible to do. You can't say, okay, this is now 0 0.009 seconds is when it's gonna be the future, right? You can't well, do act it. Actually, someone told me in Buddhism, there is a duration of now. It's not an instant. It's huh. a little bit longer than well, that. I, well, I'd like to see that because the, I mean, the the best scientists in the world haven't been able to I know of course pinpoint that down so yeah, I, I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to see the science behind it okay um but um but I, yeah I'm curious about that um but it's I think how long it, is a moment yeah and I think it I mean I think uh, I'll find it in a second okay um but I think part of the point is I mean from a Buddhist perspective that's I think fits with Buddhism. oh here yeah 
in the practice of Vipassana, this is from Tricycle Magazine, we okay. try to stay in this present moment. A single practice moment, they call it, is about one to three seconds long. <laughs> I don't think that helps. Um, what is meant by being in the moment to a Buddhist? Well, this doesn't give a time. Yeah, because you can't do it. Um, I mean, I, I challenge I've, I've heard that it's a fraction of a second. But oh, okay. So, but the second you, it's just a quantum physics like Nelda was talking about. The second you pinpoint it, it moves and shifts. It's gone in a whiff, right? Um, so that just shows you the past, present, and the future are illusions um, of our concept of the I in some ways. So, so again, I'm going to ask each of you because it's, it, it's, I think it's the seminal, the core question. What does this all mean for our embodied existence now? I mean, we can read and read and read and find words and explanations and different definitions of hope or now or whatever. But, but really, when, you, when, when, when the words are all pushed aside, what, what does that mean for how this life changing quote, moment by moment, goes through this life until well, it's over. What's neat about your question is, is Nagarjuna kept maintaining that the whole purpose of all his thinking was to end suffering. Interesting. I mean, Nagarjuna was, you know, he was really big on emptiness and emptiness being about motion. And I, I mean, I think, Nelda, I mean, how I look at it is, ties back to what you're saying earlier, which is that it's more about principles to live by and reflect on than it is about dogma that's you're obsessing over and trying to, you know, like the 18 causes of this or that or that, but it's fundamentally more about practical principles that can impact living <laughs> and, and, so it doesn't do that and that's the difference with philosophy and buddhism that philosophy is not about ending suffering it's about figuring things out and yeah and maybe a philosopher would disagree i don't know you know but but that's that's I'm like not, my yeah. my take that this is not philosophy so that's why your question is so relevant i agree like if it doesn't make a difference to you know if it improve our lives or like we were reading about the two dart sutra and that kind of stuff. That's all intended to relieve suffering. And, yeah. and I will get to my existential question that I many of us ask in different ways, but I ask it in this way. What's it all for? That's what, it. What, what's it all for? And I've it, asked and asked and asked and over the years come to different answers. But lately, the answer I've come to, because I love playing this game. What if? X, Y, X is true, or Y is true, or, or Z is true. Will that have made living this life, for me, worth living? And what I've come to, without any, you know, the five steps this, the that many precepts. So I've asked myself, is it possible that the only purpose of living this life is not a heaven or hell or demerits or this or that 
But maybe, maybe the only purpose my life serves is making the next life beside me or after coming after me just a little bit easier. Is that enough of a purpose for me to be able to say that having lived this life and boy, haven't we all had our share of joy and, and pain? Will, will that, will that one thought be enough for me to have said, yeah, it's this life is worth living to, to, to the attempt, not even the actualization of having made the next life next to me or to come after me sort of karma or, you know, um, whatever. Um, just a bit easier. For me, it is. For me, it is. And that's, for me, that's why I practice to heal myself enough to not make the life next to me or my own or, or lives to come after because of karmic results worse, but just, just a little less, just a little less painful if that's possible. And, and that doesn't have to be everyone's answers. That's just mine. So when you said that your next life or the next life, it could be your next life, but it could be the life of my grandchild neighbor or the next door neighbor. Right. Right. But that's still or, to end suffering, whether it's yeah. now or then or when or. And to me, that's a, that for me, that's sufficient. I, I don't even have the right word. Reason to go through all that I have gone through and will go through whatever that is. We certainly can get lost, can't we? Yeah, we can. <laughs> In all this. That's for sure. So, I mean, what that's about just... the Daniel, rest of you. Daniel Cody, do you guys have any thoughts before we we, wrap, we better wrap up soon? Oh, I don't yeah. have anything. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't write anything, but actually re referring to the question of meaning of life, I recently uh, heard a take on this that uh, one of the reasons maybe why we are struggling to answer it is because it's just a wrong question we ask. It's a question which makes no sense really. And in, uh, in science, for example, um, in the past and probably also right now, we are just asking incorrect questions. Like back when we were thinking that the earth is flat, we were asking what's at the edge of the earth. Or we could ask a question, what's the moon uh, what what kind of cheese is a moon made out of uh, so the same way question about what's the meaning of life may just makes maybe no sense in a broader meaning and you're just asking your own question oh thank you Daniel. Well, you're that. also making an assumption that it has a meaning yeah yeah and i think that i mean i keep i keep coming back to which is a very buddhist concept and Thich Nhat Khan talks a lot about it, but just the idea of life being amazing from a standpoint of just being able to create it anew in each moment. And because you can, I mean, you can just decide to do something different and just do it. And whether it's a moment or 10 moments or a year or two months or whatever, I mean, you can, now the outcome's not guaranteed, but you can create your existence in a new way 
every single moment. I think that's really exciting when you really think about it. Um, isn't, isn't that freedom? Yeah, that's liberation. That's why Buddha talked about it, that, that you know, it wasn't just the monks who could be enlightened or aware that it, it was available to anybody at any time. It could be just the, the, the illiterate farmer in the, in the fields who's like, he walked well, by and said, he's aware, that person's aware. He it even went time. farther. Because yeah. he, said, he said, I and all beings are awakened. So we already are. And then we just at the challenges to, to recognize it. Right. And so that's, I don't know. I mean, I think that for me, that's an amazing thing. It's lovely. So, but anyways, we better wrap it up. Um, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Um, great seeing everyone. Yeah. See you next time. I hope everyone is well. <laughs> sure. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye, all. <laughs>